I'm Matt Peterson, and this is The Present Past from The Atlantic. On this show, we compare two snapshots in time, the old story and the new story, and we talk about what's next. Today's conversation pulls together a few threads we've been following about China. My guest has thought a lot about how China's leaders use their history for their own ends. Her name is Elizabeth Perry. She's a professor of government at Harvard. I always ask my guests to reread an old Atlantic story, and I know this one felt familiar to her because Elizabeth Perry was quoted in it at the time. That old story is China's Blue Collar Blues from 2000 by Trevor Corson. Corson's story is a reevaluation of what happened at Tiananmen. In 1989, the government massacred pro-democracy protesters. But Corson says that the real political fight in China wasn't really about democracy. It was about workers versus the Communist Party. He wrote, By 1988, an average of two or three strikes a day were being called in China. The students in Tiananmen Square were of little consequence alongside the worker unrest their movement was inspiring. There's evidence that when the government finally resorted to terror to suppress the movement, it deliberately dealt a more brutal blow to workers than it did to students. All right, let's talk to Liz Perry. Hi, Liz. Hi, how are you, Matt? Good. So let's start with the idea that organized labor is a bigger threat to the Communist Party than democracy. Was that true in 2000 when this story was written? Is it still true? I think it is the case that organized labor is potentially a big problem to the Chinese Communist Party for several reasons. One is that, of course, uh, workers in the industrial sphere can bring down the economy and economic um, development and uh, the rise of the uh, incomes that have been built on China's rapid uh, economic growth in recent years is essential uh, for the continuation of the party. Another concern, of course, is that this is a government that still calls itself a communist government. That means that theoretically it's representing the interests of the working class, of the proletariat. And so there is a symbolic role that workers play in China that is really very powerful. Um, But as to whether uh, worker protest is a bigger threat than uh, the threat of uh, demand for democracy on the part of students and intellectuals. It all depends really on what kinds of coalitions these social forces are or are not able to forge at various moments in time. Okay, so then just sticking with 1989 for a minute, was the the thing that that the party was reacting to then? Was it a coalition between labor and student democracy protesters? I believe it was. I think why 1989 seemed so threatening to the Chinese Communist Party was precisely because workers and students uh, were joined together in making demands for change. And this is something that the Chinese Communist Party always has feared. After all, its own party was really um, forged through a linkage between workers and intellectuals. When the Chinese Communist Party was first established in the 1920s, It was a party initially of intellectuals, but their first move was to go into factories in Shanghai and elsewhere to attempt to mobilize industrial workers. And although ultimately the revolution was won in the countryside, um, it um, was always uh, concerned about the coalition between workers and intellectuals. And this has remained a continuing motif uh, right down to the present in 
Um, the late 1990s, we saw the effort on the part of some intellectuals to found a so-called democracy party. Uh, and those intellectuals went into factories in Hangzhou and elsewhere. They were very um, harshly repressed by the regime that was fearful of a worker intellectual alliance. Um, the idea of it, it's not only workers intellectuals, but really any kind of cross class, cross territorial alliance is viewed um, with uh, great concern by the Chinese Communist Party. So again, in the 1990s, when Falun Gong uh, suddenly popped up, the regime was concerned, I believe not so much because of the quasi-religious views of Falun Gong, but rather because it also represented a coalition of lots of different kinds of people, party members, non-party members, old, young, uh, military, non-military, educated, uneducated, and so forth. So whenever people are able to cross the kinds of silos that the Chinese Communist Party prefers to keep them in, uh, the party is very concerned and uh, often reacts with overwhelming force. And is is labor a constant in these kinds of coalitions that become problematic? You didn't mention that in, in your your quick recap of what Falun Gong, the threat that Falun Gong posed. Uh, labor is not always a constant. Um, labor is an important, very prominent element. Uh, labor was uh, one of the um, social groups in Falun Gong. There certainly were a number of workers who were part of it. Um, but there have been other moments when, for example, rural protests um, uh, have gotten out of control, such as the late 1990s when there were tax protests that uh, moved from one village to another, and the regime reacted quite harshly uh, to them as well. But I think the, the regime does react um, more sensitively to labor than to other social forces, to labor and to students and intellectuals, I would say. Those are probably regarded as the two most politically dangerous social forces in China um, because of the history of the party, um, because of their uh, importance, both um, symbolically and, um, and economically. Can you just spell out what that symbolic importance is for those groups? So the symbolism of of workers, um, as I mentioned, they are the proletariat. They are supposed to be the um, leading class of Chinese society. According to Marxism, it is uh, the working class that carries out a communist revolution, the working class that realizes that it has been exploited by capitalism that comes together to overthrow capitalism and carry out a proletarian revolution. Um, of course, in both the former Soviet Union and in the People's Republic of China, the revolution um, was not precisely <laughs> in the directions that Marx had predicted, although both of them carried out revolutions in the name of the proletariat. Um, in the Russian case, the proletariat was small, but still played a very important role in the revolution of 1917. In the Chinese Communist Party, the, the uh, proletariat was even smaller as a percentage of the overall population. It played still a very important role in the 1920s and again in the late 1940s when the party marched into the major cities of China. 
After 1949, the Chinese Communist Party gave all kinds of benefits to workers at state-owned enterprises. They received um, relatively high salaries compared to other elements of the population. They had a so-called iron rice bowl um, where they could expect lifetime employment. They received special subsidies for education, for medical care, and so forth. Um, far better treatment than the peasants even the in the countryside, even though in fact, over the nearly 30 year course of the Chinese revolution, it was the peasants more than the workers who deserved credit for really having uh, propelled the Chinese communist power to victory. But the workers were regarded as the um, class of Marxism-Leninism. The workers were also appreciated as having a very special kind of economic clout because of their concentration in major urban centers and in major factories that were the engines of growth. So for both reasons of ideological legitimacy and for pragmatic uh, economic reasons, the workers were taken very seriously and uh, were given all kinds of benefits uh, by the new Communist Party state. Yeah, I like that, that phrase that you use that, that China hasn't gone precisely in the direction that Marx proposed. I mean, in this you know, since 1979, as Corson writes in this piece, you know, the story of China is the great rush of wealth and the rise of inequality and corruption that has accompanied it. Um, and of course, there's been a backlash, um, even as far back as 2000, when, when he wrote that story. You were quoted in that piece as describing a workers' manifesto from 1989, where protesters were upset that, quote, bureaucrats use the people's hard-earned money to build luxury villas. So there's been this tension between the sort of unleashed capitalism and revolutionary principles for, for some time. It sounds like for much of China's history, right? But how, how does the Communist Party deal with that contradiction? Well, of course, there have been contradictions since really the inception of the Chinese Communist Party. It was taking place in a society that was primarily agrarian, that had a relatively small working class. It had to, in effect, deviate from uh, Marxist orthodoxy in order to carry out a revolution, um, despite the fact that Lenin had provided a kind of bridge between Marxism and uh, more agrarian, less uh, industrialized societies, still Mao and his colleagues had to improvise in all kinds of ways um, to make this revolution work. So there are a variety of ways um, that uh, the Chinese revolution and the post-49 communist state deviated from uh, Marxist Marxism and from Leninism as well. But despite all of that, one constant uh, from the beginning of uh, the revolution in the 1920s right down to the present has been that the leaders of the Communist Party have been insistent upon Communist Party leadership and insistent that the fundamental ideology of the party is Marxism-Leninism. It gets things added to it. It gets Maoism added to it. Most recently, it's had Xi Jinping thought uh, added to it as well. But the fact that this is a communist party that takes very seriously um, its claim to being a communist party um, helps explain, for example, why today Xi Jinping is engaged in the longest anti-corruption struggle in the history of the Chinese Communist Party.
Party, a corruption struggle that has targeted literally millions of Communist Party members and officials all across uh, China. So on the one hand, yes, there are ways in which China looks very capitalist and um, and certainly doesn't look like um, an ideal Marxist communist uh, state. But the fact that it is being run by a communist party, which still ties its own legitimacy to an effort to present itself as uh a uh, communist party that operates according to Marxist-Leninist principles has been very important for explaining uh, a lot of what the party leadership has done from the 1920s down to the present. Um, Deng Xiaoping, of course, justified his um, suppression of the Tiananmen protesters with tanks in 1989 in order to maintain um, the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. Everything that uh, Xi Jinping does today, he justifies as uh, a means of strengthening Communist Party leadership and its continuing hold over the Chinese Communist Party state. So, you know, plenty of um, ironies here, plenty of ways in which this state and this party have deviated from what we might think of as Orthodox Marxism-Leninism, but the very fact that they claim that for their legitimacy has been highly significant. Right. You, you mentioned this anti-corruption campaign that Xi Jinping is carrying out now, has been carrying out for a few years. How does that, how does that uphold these revolutionary principles? Well, the um, revolutionary principles, um, particularly as articulated by Lenin, were that a Chinese that any communist party must um, be of uh, must be led by individuals who are morally and ethically pure, who have a superior knowledge of Marxism, Leninism, and who sacrifice their own interests for the interests of the party. And so this notion of a party elite that is morally pure, that is theoretically sophisticated, that is self-sacrificing and committed to the greater good of the revolution has been there since the beginning. Now, it's obviously, of course, often been practiced um, in the breach. Um, Mao himself deviated, particularly in his later years, in all kinds of ways from this notion um, of moral almost puritanical purity that uh, the party espoused, but it has been there as a kind of uh, benchmark against which the party has measured its cadres. And there have been anti-corruption campaigns um, from the 1940s down to the present, waves of them to try to get rid of corruption and to make sure that the party leadership is serving the proletariat, serving the masses and, and the greater good. Um, so Xi Jinping very much views what he's doing as in line with that uh, continuing tradition of uh, party purification efforts. So how how useful practically is this kind of party purification in, in quelling the kind of um, labor concerns that were sort of underlying this this piece, this course in peace where, you know, the, the workers are upset that they're being fired from state-owned enterprises and they're not getting their pensions or whatever it is. Like, does, it, does, it, does this actually work in, in satisfying workers' demands? I think 
the uh, anti-corruption campaign has had some effect in uh, um, in quelling um, mass uh, dissatisfaction in China. It's hard to know um, statistically because a few years ago, the Chinese, well, about a decade ago, um, the Chinese state started rele- stopped releasing public fi- figures on the numbers of labor protests and other kinds of mass protests in China. We know there are, in fact, still a lot of them. There are all kinds of protests in China, however, um, not just workers' protests. There are environmental protests. Um, there have been protests in the countryside over various kinds of concerns. The only real area um, that has not seen a lot of protest in recent years has been in the universities. And the reason there clearly has to do with very tight control that the party has exerted over the universities. Um, But I think, you know, if you ask people on a kind of anecdotal uh, level, yes, I would say that Xi Jinping's commitment to anti-corruption has um, won the party um, some more uh, breathing time. But along, of course, with anti-corruption have come all kinds of ways in which the party state is exerting much greater control over the factories as well as the universities and over individuals through a whole variety of means, through um, surveillance techniques that are far more sophisticated than they were a few years ago, over a social credit program that's being introduced in the major cities of China where people are given points for good behavior and demerits for bad behavior that uh, is then used um, to um, control them uh, in a whole variety of ways. So there are a number of things that the government has been doing along with the anti-corruption campaign such that it's very hard to know exactly um, which are the things that are being most effective in maintaining party control. And the party is trying to do this on multiple levels, ideological levels, um, disciplinary levels, technological levels. Um, So a great deal of thought and energy is going into maintaining control over potentially restive members of the population. But I would not want to give the impression that all of Chinese society is just chomping at the bit, waiting to protest and to bring down the state. I think the reality is really quite different, that we've certainly seen lots of protest in China, whether it's by intellectuals in the past or whether it's by workers in more recent years. Um, For the most part, their demands are relatively modest. Um, Very seldom has there been a real demand for a complete overhaul of the Chinese communist political system. Usually it's about maintaining their jobs or improving their wages or getting paid um, back pay. Um, or in the case of students, uh, improving their food in the cafeteria or giving them um, uh, a better um, control over their job assignment and, and so forth. Usually these are really quite closely connected to mundane sorts of issues rather than being politically threatening sorts of demands. And these days, as Chinese citizens um, look out around the world, for the most part, you don't hear them saying, well, I'd really like to be, have our, replace our political system with the American political system, or I'd really like to replace our political system with the British political system. They look out and see Western liberal democracies in disarray, and they say, 
hmm, um, things may not be perfect in China, we may not like all of these restrictions and so forth, but they do seem to work. So I, I don't believe that there's a major groundswell in China for fundamental political change. Um, and I don't really believe that there was in 1989, and um, I don't believe there has been since then. There's a lot of protests, there's a lot of demand for reform and improvement and so forth, but most of that has to do with strengthening the current system rather than actually overthrowing it. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, this this Trevor Corson piece from 2000 makes this sort of logical leap that you're describing where he says that, you know, if the private sector in China can keep growing, then there will be a long-term transition away from repression, he says, right? So he's, he's saying, well, they're going to deal with their labor problems, but then also people are going to separately want to, you know, now that they're, they have jobs, they're going to want to push back against the government and, and, you know, push for a more western style democracy and and that that didn't that didn't happen i mean like that that logical failure seems to be you know this is a big fight in our politics right now that people sort of misread this thing that was happening um i mean do you think it was it was clear even 20 years ago that this was a misreading of how things would go well, I believe it was a misreading. Um, you know, I'm one of those who's never predicted imminent democratization in China. Um, in 1989, of course, people looked at Tiananmen Square. They saw the goddess of democracy standing there, what they called the goddess of democracy. They said, oh, it looks just like the Statue of Liberty. Um, China is going to become just like us in a few years. You know, other observers, myself included, looked at that statue and said, wow, it looks a lot like uh, the Chinese Buddhist uh, goddess of mercy, Guayim Bodhisattva, and it also looks like a lot of uh, statue and communist art from the Soviet period on. Um, and it's not clear that it really represents a yearning to be just like the United States. Um, the demands of the students in Tiananmen were, of course, interpreted by Western journalists who were there as sounding like demands for Western-style democracy. Um, but those who were living in China, such as the American sociologist Craig Calhoun, who actually talked to Chinese um, protesters uh, in the streets there, found that for the most part, they were actually trying to uh, advocate for a stronger China and a pure, less corrupt, uh, more effective Chinese Communist Party rather than a complete overthrow of the system. And I think that's what we've seen since then. We always want to assume that people elsewhere um, think and feel just the same as we do and really appreciate our political system and would like to uh, exchange their for theirs for ours in a heartbeat. But in my experience, that's really not always the case. And I think that's much more true in recent years um, since the election of Trump in this country and since Brexit in the United Kingdom and since a movement around the world toward greater populism and strongman politics and nationalism and so forth, um, that more and more Chinese look at their own political system and say, well, it's not so bad. And maybe it's okay that in 1989, the tanks in Tiananmen Square saved us from the fate of the former Soviet Union that looks like it's been decline, in decline since um, 
1991, when the Soviet Union was dismembered. Um, so um, I, uh, I I don't think it's the case, uh, as I said, that Chinese uh, ordinary people are just really um, chomping at the bit to push back against government repression. Um, I think it, it surprised a number of Western commentators how amenable many Chinese have been to this social credit system that provides a kind of digital archive on all their economic and political activities, um, and been surprised that um, for many Chinese, well, this uh, can lead to good governance and fair governance and more equitable governance rather than being seen necessarily as an unwelcome intrusion on their personal privacy. So, you know, we see things differently depending on our um, political histories and uh, our cultural past. And uh, China's a complicated place. It's a place um, where the Chinese Communist Party state has managed to do uh, a lot, it seems. And um, people therefore view it in a way rather differently from those of us who live outside that system and see it basically as highly repressive and something that we ourselves would clearly not want to live under. Yeah, I I will admit to to assuming that the Chinese state is more repressive than it is sometimes. And one of the things that's that's been interesting for me in the last couple of, we've done a couple of, of interviews with folks who've dealt with activists in China on feminism and environmentalism. And what, what surprised me sometimes in talking to those experts was the, yes, activism is very hard in China, but there are lots of ways that people can and do push back against the government. I mean, I remember um, some stories about some feminist activists who were being detained, you know, calling up their minders and yelling at them and and saying, you know, this is illegal, let me go. And sometimes it works. Um, and, and I'm interested in like the the sort of the space for dissent and what, what the party allows and the ways that it channels dissent towards manageable subjects. Can you talk about that? Well, Chinese, I would say, are inherently pretty feisty. <laughs> there are long traditions uh, of all different kinds of protest. Again, protest that very seldom was directed at really changing the political system, but was very uh, useful as a means of expressing their interests. You know, in a system which for thousands of years has not really had democratic elections, people can't go to the ballot box to express their opinions. So they typically take to the streets to do so. So there are very well-developed uh, traditions of protests that are sometimes really very effective in uh, making people's interests known. But there are clear limits to that, and the limits are always changing. They're never entirely clear. They have changed under different political leaders in China. Mao Zedong often encouraged masses to go into the streets in order to discipline cadres. Although uh, Xi Jinping is concerned about disciplining cadres and curbing corruption, he doesn't want masses in the streets doing that. He wants that to be an internal party affair. Under Xi Jinping, there have been a variety of of uh, new limits placed on mass protest. You mentioned the feminist activists, also um, a whole variety of human rights activists um, who've been rounded up in China. 
Um, any hint of uh, secession, as uh, the Uyghur problem indicates, is going to be dealt with with overwhelming force on the part of the Chinese communist state. The detentions going on in Xinjiang are an indication of how draconian the reaction of the Chinese communist state can be um, to fears that it has uh, of popular unrest. Um, so I, I would not want to whitewash or sugarcoat um, the Chinese communist state, but it has an up and down at different periods, and the state has generally recognized that protests, um, which are quite limited in their demands, and which, as I said, do not involve kind of crossing the territorial, occupational, or social boundaries in which the state would like to keep people siloed have generally uh, been okay, have been tolerated by the Communist Party state. But the lines are never entirely clear. And part of the reason is to make people um, a little nervous, uh, to inhibit them from protesting every time they have a concern, and also to give the state the upper hand so that it can always redefine the boundaries when it wants to. Um, and decide that something is problematic and repress it. So there's been a lot of protest, but there also is um, a lot of very harsh repression when particular political leaders or particular agencies of the state decide that something's gotten out of hand. And it's never entirely predictable. The rules uh, change. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Liz Perry is the Henry Rosowski Professor of Government at Harvard University and director of the Harvard Yenching Institute. The old story we were reading is China's Blue Collar Blues from 2000 by Trevor Corson. You can read that on theatlantic.com. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Matt. 